a few years ago, I think actually last year sometime, I listened to an audio book on the life of Jonathan Edwards. Um, he's a, a great revivalist. He's a great theologian and pastor um, during the Great Awakening. And this book, it was just like a massive tome. I, I forget how long it was. It was hours and hours long listening to this book. And uh, it covered like every issue of the day. It wanted to give you a, a full-orbed picture of the life of Jonathan Edwards. So it, it talked about slavery. It talked about relations with the British Empire. It talked about relations with the Native Americans in the area. Um, and that's before it even addressed the birth of Jonathan Edwards' parents. Um, this book, it covered every conceivable idea connected to the life of Jonathan Edwards. Um, it really wanted to paint a full picture of his life and times because he was so influential. He was so influential on the church, on our culture. Um, I, I had to read his, uh, his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, when I was in high school. People still read his uh, religious affections. He's been greatly influential. So it makes sense that this book would be so big and would cover so much information about and around him, right? Um, so the first-time reader of the Gospels might be surprised at the information that's provided on the life of Christ, the most influential man that's ever lived. Um, we have considerable information about his birth and the manner of his birth, right? We have a fairly robust picture we can put together of his three-year ministry leading up to his crucifixion, um, and that's pretty much it. That's pretty much all we have. We have nothing at all concerning the, the uh, I don't know, 30 years or so in between his return from Egypt as a child and, and the starting, his baptism, kicking off his ministry. We have nothing touching that. Um, Another fact, however, that I think is very surprising is the disproportionate emphasis on the last week of Christ's life. There are 89 chapters in all the Gospels put together, and they're, again, they're covering primarily the last three years of his life, and 29 of those chapters cover only the last seven days. Um, a third of all the material that the Holy Spirit inspired the evangelist to write concerning the life of Jesus Christ, covers these last seven days of his life that we call the Passion Week. Um, this is not just something that we contemporarily have added on uh, to the gospel. It's not just that Jesus was a good teacher who taught good moral things, and over the years we thought we should add this idea of the atonement on. This was the big focus, the big emphasis of the New Testament writers. These last seven days are imperative, and that's what we're going to be looking at. We can't cover all of these 29 chapters, obviously, over the next few weeks leading up to the resurrection, uh, and we won't try to. We're going to hit some of the high points, though, and we want to give you just a glimpse of the, the excitement and the, um, the emphasis the New Testament puts on this, this imperative time in Christ's life. So, having said that, would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21? Matthew chapter 21. So just to kind of catch us up to speed on the life of Christ, um, within probably the past few weeks, Christ has raised Lazarus from the dead. If you recall that story, one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. Um, and upon doing that, 
Uh, he retreats from Jerusalem and its suburbs. Um, he, he's, he's prompted by both overwhelming popular support, all the people are flocking to him, and it's just getting too crowded. Um, and also the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the leaders of the day, want to kill him. Um, so both of these are good reasons for him to retreat for a time. So he, he retreats to a small town called Ephraim, and then he, he kind of circles around, takes a very circuitous route, and he probably joins a group of, of Galilean pilgrims coming up to Jerusalem for the Passover. Um, so the people want to know where the Messiah is. He, he, support for Christ is reaching a fever pitch. And on the other hand, his opponents are actively trying to kill him and those people uh, who he's benefited. There's a plot to kill Lazarus right now as well. So this is a very uh, tense, boiling scene that Christ is going to enter with a bang here in Matthew 21. And I love, right before we read the text, Luke, in his account, he tells us the beginning of his triumphal entry account um, that he was going on ahead up to Jerusalem. And I love uh, Matthew Poole, the Puritan commentator. He says, Luke taketh notice of this to let us know certainly with what alacrity, what haste or speed our Savior managed the business of man's redemption. He knew that he was at this time to be the sufferer and to die at Jerusalem to show that he was freely willing, he leadeth the way. So Christ is leading the way to his own crucifixion, essentially. There's some imperative things that are going to happen first, and we'll see these in Matthew 21, starting here in verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, they put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up and saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And then Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus answered them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. 
So we see the first thing we're going to point out here in our text is the king's route. How does Christ enter the city? You would expect, remember, uh, his support is reaching fever pitch among the people, uh, but the leaders want to kill him. So if you are in Christ's shoes, if you are a leader of people and you know that your opponents want to kill you and you're going up to uh, the busiest city in the nation at the busiest time of the year, how would you enter the city? Uh, Would you maybe slip in through the back door, try not to cause a scene um, so that your enemies don't kill you? Instead, uh, Christ chooses to enter this way. He has a parade. He has a parade on his way into the city. He orchestrates things perfectly so that he can make it to the end of the week when his work is going to be done. He he draws the, the popular support around him and he takes charge of the temple as we're going to see. This is just a a beautiful picture. The the manner of his entry is incredible. Christ begins here um, to do some very kingly things, which I really love. Uh, But again, the first thing we see is his route, the way that he approaches, right? So it says, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives. So Bethpage and Bethany, uh, where Christ often stayed, that's where his friend Lazarus, who just raised from the dead, lives, where Mary and Martha, his sisters, live. Christ was often a guest at Bethany, and that is on the, uh, on the far slope of the Mount of Olives, on the other side of Jerusalem, right? So that's on the east slope. So you have Jerusalem here, you have the Mount of Olives here, and on the far slope of the Mount of Olives, you have Bethany and Bethpage. And that's where, where Christ comes to. And, and as he comes here on his way to Jerusalem, uh, he, he, he's going to come over the mountain, descend the mountain, and cross the uh, the valley of the Kidron, and then enter the city. Most likely, unless he circles the city for some unknown reason, he is most likely going to enter through the east gate, which is the temple gate of Jerusalem. So, so can you picture this? Christ is going, to, is going to summit the Mount of Olives, descend the Mount of Olives, and enter the city uh, via the temple. That's Christ's route here. So there, there's this motif, this pattern throughout Scripture that I think is very interesting that I want to point out to you here. We're not going to turn to all these texts, but if you're taking notes, um, I'll give you some things you might want to write down. Um, in the, there's a garden right here in, in the beginning in Genesis. God, he creates the world and he, he puts a garden, it says, to the east. God plants a garden to the east. Um, that's in, in Genesis 2.8. Um, he plants this garden to the east, and then you, when man sins, when Adam and Eve, they eat of the fruit, God sends them out of the garden. Where does he send them? He sends them east of Eden. So they have to go a little further again. Um, so they go east of Eden, and, and sin just continues to send man further east. You see this. Uh, the descendants of Adam continue to track further east for the next several generations, so again, that's Genesis 2.8, Genesis 3.24, Genesis 4.16. We'll show you a little bit more about that. And that continues for some time. And then, if you recall the story of Abraham, uh, how does God call Abram to, to back to the promised land, right? Abraham is, he is an Ur of the Chaldees, and God says, I'm going to send you to the promised land. I'm going to send you to Canaan. So he gets up and he goes without knowing where he's going. 
But what direction does he go? He travels now west. God calls him back to, to the place where he planted man in the first place. There's this picture, this east and west. God sends man away east for, because of their sin, and he brings man back west to himself. You can track this picture throughout the Old Testament. It's very interesting, very cool. Um, he sends Israel east into captivity in Babylon, and then he brings them back into their land in the west. Again, you have that east-west picture. But then in Ezekiel, um, and there's a large passage here. If you want to go through this, I'll give you a couple, a couple uh, references. Ezekiel chapter 8, uh, verse 1, through Ezekiel 9, verse 3. And then again, uh, Ezekiel 11, verses 1 and 23. In Ezekiel, God breaks the pattern that, that he's painted of sending man east and pulling them back west. In Ezekiel, the glory of the Lord in judgment for impurity in the temple, he departs the temple and he leaves his dwelling among men from the west to the east. Instead of saying, man, you've sinned, you'll go east, and then I'll bring you back west, the glory of the Lord says, that's it. You have defiled my temple, and I am going to leave my dwelling among men. And he picks up and he goes east. He exits the temple through the east gate. He ascends the Mount of Olives, and he departs the temple. God leaves his dwelling among men, and the temple becomes essentially an empty shell. They have the rituals, they have the altar, they have, they have the ark at this point still in Ezekiel, but they don't have the presence of God. He's departed. It's bereft of the God whom it is intended to worship. So how is Christ now going to enter the city? He's going to summit the Mount of Olives. He's going to descend the Mount of Olives, pass through the Kidron Vale, and enter the temple the very same way that the glory of the Lord departed the temple. So you see what Christ is doing? He's not just coming up for the Passover. The glory of the Lord is finally returning to his temple. <laughs> the, the, the presence of God is coming back to his dwelling among men. And the barrier... That was created by the Mount of Olives. You see the, the glory of the Lord departs. He ascends the Mount of Olives and it stands there. This barrier between the east and the west, between God's people and the way that God had departed them, he summits that barrier and he enters his dwelling with men again. And he, he doesn't just come this way on accident. He plans his route purposely. God is coming back. It's a beautiful picture. I, I love this. So the first thing we see, again, is the king's route. So he's going to descend the mount, cross the valley, and enter the city via the temple. The second thing we see in, in verses uh, 2 through 7, Jesus says, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. So the next thing we see, if we saw the king's route, now we see the king's requisition. Uh, the king, he, he, 
he just takes this donkey and colt from someone. He's the king and he has the right to do so. Whether this is divine foreknowledge or an arranged situation, Christ initiates this requisition. Uh, He sends his followers to take this donkey and this colt with no thought of payment or apology. He's the king, and the king gets to do what the king wants to do. If the king needs your donkey and your colt, well, that's his prerogative. He, He exercises royal prerogative here. He lays claim to a mount upon which to enter the city. What does this tell us today? What would you think if you're the guy uh, who owns that donkey and that colt? And the disciples come and they say, uh, you know, the Lord has need of your donkey and your colt. Just try to put yourself in, in this man's position, right? First of all, who's the Lord? Who is the Lord that you're talking about? Um, well, we have Pilate down there in the city who, who governs us. Um, we have we have Caesar over in Rome who governs us. We have the Sadducees and Pharisees who tax us. But who's this Lord that you're talking about? And why does he get to call the shots? We don't have any argument recorded in Scripture. They know who's coming. They know that Jesus is coming. There's been quite a stir about Jesus' arrival. And they don't question that the Lord has a right to lay claim to their property for his use. So what does this tell you and I? It reminds us that we need to lay aside any vestige of our modern Western individualism and independence in regard to the Lord. Every scrap of it. Uh, He is our sovereign and it's within his right, it's within his power to lay any burden upon us that he wants to. He can require any task of us Um, He can place any restriction on us that he pleases for his glory and for the good of his kingdom. And we we must be like that one who let his donkey and colt go. We must submit willingly and say, what the Lord wants, the Lord gets. The king can have his way with me. He's carrying forward his rule, his reign in the world, and we just serve him. That's our sole purpose. We have no rights, no privileges, no hopes, no dreams, and no opinions that are not subject to his absolute rule. He calls the shots. We submit to him. He is exercising royal prerogative, and he still does so today. And that's true, but I, I also want you to recognize the mount he chooses. If you had the right to requisition any mount you wanted to, to enter the city in grand procession, what would you choose? You know, you'd find a big, good-looking war horse, right? You'd find a, a team of horses to pull a chariot. It would take them from Rome, right? No, he chooses a, a donkey and her colt that no one had ever ridden on before. The first and most obvious reason uh, for this is illustrated, I think, in that that prophecy uh, that he refers to in Zechariah 9. Um, He's demonstrating his meekness and his lowliness. If he has right to make free with the property of his rightful subjects, then again, he has the right to a better mount than an unbroken donkey's colt. But he chooses to enter meek and lowly. 
And this is just so typical of Christ, isn't it? He, he does kingly things in an unconventional and unexpected way. What was his birth like? He was lauded by angels and worshipped by men and laid in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, right? He, he, he's already been recognized as, as the son of David, as the rightful heir to the throne of Israel, but he's been recognized as that by a blind man. He, everything he does, he, he is kingly, but he does it in an unconventional way. And I, I love this humble picture that we see. Um, he even has, this is unconventional, he even has his triumphal entry. That's what we call this, right? The triumphal entry. He hasn't even won any battles yet. He's doing everything out of order. He's doing everything unconventionally. But he's being kingly nonetheless. So why does Christ choose to enter this way? He is, he is being meek and he's being lowly. Also, I want to point out to you, um, you don't have to turn there, but a little bit more context around this prophecy in Zechariah 9. This is talking about the, the punishment of the nations surrounding Israel. The king, the Messiah, is going to come and he's going to, to conquer Israel's enemies. The Philistines, their, their princes and allies are particularly in view in this chapter. But I want to read to you a little bit from Zechariah 9. He says, And a mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod, that's a city of the Philistines, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. And I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth, says I'll cleanse them. And then they also will be a remnant for our God, and they will be like a clan in Judah. And Ekron, another city of, Philistine, of the Philistines, will be like a Jebusite. And then he comes into to verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So not only is, is Christ coming to Jerusalem as the Messiah, but he's coming as a conqueror, right? He's the conqueror who conquers Israel's enemies. But how does he do it? Know that it's that strange transition, right? He goes from, I will cut off the pride of the Philistines to saying, I will cleanse them and they will be a remnant for our God and will be like a clan in Judah. He's going to conquer his enemies, but how is he going to do it? Well, he's detailing his judgment on the Philistines and their allies and he, he starts talking about cleansing them and he starts talking about incorporating his enemies into his kingdom. And this is the prophecy that Christ is fulfilling purposely and self-consciously. Um, he is coming as a conqueror, make no mistake. When he comes in, yes, he is meek and lowly, but he is coming as a conqueror. He is a victorious king who is going to win a battle. Um, and he's not just intending to take Jerusalem, no. The, the broader context of this prophecy tells us he's going to take the whole of the world. He is going to defeat Israel's enemies. But how is he going to do it? Again, this unconventional king that we have. The manner of his conquest is not going to be the destruction of his enemies, but it's going to be the inclusion of his enemies into his people. The way he defeats his enemies is by making them his friends. That's how he's going to come. That's how he's going to win. This is such a beautiful picture of the spread of the gospel. Christ, he is forging a kingdom 
built on his own blood rather than the blood of his enemies. That's what we're going to see. I think this speaks directly to those of us who want to be very concerned with with winning culture wars on both sides of the political aisle. So those of us who are very interested in influencing politics and in taking dominion, that's all well and good, and we ought to do those things. But how does Christ do this? He, he does this in an unexpected way. Each of those aims might be consistent with Christ, but we have to remember that his typical mode of operations has always been sacrifice. It's, it's not the way he wins battles is by dying. It's by giving up himself. Our weapons as, as believers are not the weapons of this world. So I, I beg you, I beseech you, I implore you, and if I need to, by the authority of Scripture, I will command you, keep the gospel the main thing. Keep the gospel the first thing. It is of first importance. Don't waste Please, don't waste your best strength. Don't waste your most persuasive speech. Uh, don't waste your, um, the sharpness of your mind, the fervency of your passion. Don't waste those things on anything lesser. And anything and everything is lesser than the proclamation of the gospel, obedience to Christ's commands. Anything is lesser than that. Don't invest yourself. I'm not saying don't exercise your rights. You should do that. We need to vote. We need to be good citizens. But, but don't get so wrapped up in, in canceling on one side or in boycotting the people who are canceling on the other. No, focus on this thing, the preaching of the gospel. If you want to see change in the world, this is the way that Christ affects change. He offers himself. He dies on a cross and he sends his servants to die and to preach the gospel as they do it. That's how we're going to change the world. Humility, sacrifice, the preaching of the gospel, and intercessory prayer are the watchwords of the Christian disciple. That's how we change the world. That's how we fight. Why else does Christ enter this way? Um, I, I think he's painting a picture of his purpose. He's painting a picture of this, this broader um, plan that he has. I was, I was very interested as I was reading. I was like, why does he do this donkey and colt thing? So let me explain a little bit. Um, he sends his disciples to get a donkey and a colt on whom no one had ever ridden before, right? And then I, I forget now, one of the... Uh, one of the accounts says that he rides them into the city. And so you get this picture. It's like, what is he doing? Does he have like one foot on the donkey, one foot on the colt? How is he entering? Now, he rides the colt. We see here his disciples place cloaks on this colt that no one had ever ridden before. But it was, it was a colt that no one had ever ridden before. We, when I was up at Word of Life, uh, my first summer there, I think, we had this donkey that they used um, for this play. They, they used in their passion play. And they sent him back to us at the ranch because they were like, uh, the donkey's broken. He keeps bucking Jesus off during the triumphal entry. And that's a real problem, right? Uh, so they send us this donkey. And I have documentary, somewhere on Facebook, there is documentary evidence that it's not easy to ride an unbroken colt. All right? Because there's a picture of me getting bucked off of this thing and like dragged through the dirt. 
and it was it was like an old western. Everyone's sitting on the railings watching, and we would just take turns getting bucked off of this donkey. This isn't a very easy thing to do, you see. And so what the disciples did, they bring the colt and the donkey. He had never been ridden, but he's with his mother. And if they lead her on first, he is more likely to quietly and calmly follow. So she leads the way, and Christ follows sitting on the colt. How humble is this? Again, what a, what a picture of humility. And so I think there's a picture being painted here. And it's very interesting to me. Um, a prophecy that's often overlooked is in Genesis 49, verses 10 through 11. That's when Jacob is prophesying about his sons. And about Judah, he says uh, that from him the scepter will not depart. Right, That Judah's line is going to be the kingly line. But then there's this interesting line that he tags on to that. And he says that uh, his donkey he binds to a vine, and his colt he binds to a choice vine. And I, I read that actually not long ago, and I remember being kind of like, well, that's a little strange. What's this all about? And then I, I continued along and didn't think too much about it. Um, later on in the book of Jeremiah, Israel is compared to a female donkey. And it's not a particularly flattering comparison that's made either, but Israel is compared to a female donkey out in the wilderness. So we see Israel being pictured as this donkey. And then Zechariah, again, which we've seen, he predicts both the donkey and her colt. Um, and, and it's in Luke chapter 19 in his account that he tells us that this is a colt on whom no one has ever ridden before. So what does this all come together to mean? I think it means this. You could push this either way. You can, you can tell me I'm wrong and that's okay. Um, but, but I believe this is what Christ is painting a picture of. Israel is the donkey that gave birth to the colt. She leads it forth, but it is the one that's being ridden by Christ. The colt um, has been unridden, and it is the picture of the church, is the new thing that Christ is ushering in. Israel is the donkey that has led the way. It is bound to a vine. The, the, it is... It's bound to a life-giving source, right? Israel was bound to God in the Old Testament. He gave them life. He gave them vitality. He was their dwelling place in all generations. But now Christ is bringing in a new thing. It is bound to the choice vine, a, a better source of life. Um, this is the church which Christ will usher in and through which he will rule and reign over people from every tribe and every nation. The church is bound to Christ as our choice vine. He is the source of life that we have, unique from the Old Testament saints who look forward to him in hope. We, we are now bound to him, not just to the hope of him coming, uh, but to the hard reality that he has come. I think that's the picture that he's painting. You can argue with me about that if you like, and I won't be offended, but that's a, a picture that I wanted to share with you because I think it is a beautiful picture, and I believe it is correct. So we've seen Christ, the king's route. We've seen the way he's going to come. We've seen his requisition. He took command of someone else's stuff, and they didn't question him. Now we see that the king's retinue, or the king's entourage, the people that are with him, the, this procession that comes with him. First, I, I want to take a look at the, uh, the composition of the crowd, right? So we know there's a crowd with Christ, um, but who are they? Uh, first, we see those ahead the text tells us, right? Um, in uh, 
Lost my place here. Verse 8, he says, The crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees, and they spread them on the road. Um, those that went before him and those that followed him were shouting. So there's those that go before him and those that are following him. Uh, John 12 tells us a little bit about those who were ahead. So there's a group in the city, and they hear that Christ is coming. The whole city is stirred up because Christ is coming. Um, again, these are residents of Jerusalem who knew about the raising of Lazarus. So they are very interested in Christ. Um, and there are probably Galileans who've possibly come up with Christ, and they know that he's come. And so they're in the city. They've gone to their relatives in the city, and they say, hey, Jesus is right outside of town in Bethany. And so you know, the first day that the, the Sabbath is over, Sunday morning, the crowd is stirred up because they're ready for something to happen. And so they go out to meet Christ. Um, this, again, combined with the tales of Lazarus that made him quite popular. So they're crossing the Kidron Valley and they're already going up the slope when Christ of the Mount of Olives when Christ meets them. So they're eager to meet with Christ. So these are people that are caught up in the excitement of everything that's happening. Maybe they don't know Christ personally, but, but they want to get a look at him. Um, they want to see what he's going to do next. They'll applaud him, they'll praise him, they'll welcome him in hopes that they can get something from him. They want to see the next miracle. They want to see the next thing that he's going to do. This is the crowd that goes before him. And then there are those who followed him. And these seem to be his disciples, both his 12 disciples and others that had gathered to him by this time. Likely, many of the residents of Bethany and Bethpage, they'd been present for the raising of Lazarus, and they recognize at least that he deserves to be at the head of the procession. So they're not trying to get ahead of him. All right, so these are the two groups, those that follow and those who are ahead. And what do these people do? Well, they, they lay their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees, and they spread them on the road. So, so what are they doing here? They, first, they're laying out palm branches on the road. Um, I find it very interesting in, in Leviticus, uh, chapter 23, verse 40, if you're interested in turn, and looking at that later. Um, the first day of the Feast of Booths uh, is celebrated by the, the building of your, of your booth, of your tabernacle, your tent. And you, you would go out and you'd cut pine, uh, pine branches, palm branches, to build your tabernacle with. Um, and, and waving them around was a part of the, the celebration. And so it, it's as though they're celebrating the wrong holiday here. It's like, uh, guys, it's Passover. It's not the Feast of Booths here. Um, so, and the Feast of Booths leads up to the Day of Atonement. So, so that's the, the first thing we see there. They're laying down palm branches. And the next thing they do is they're laying down their coats and their cloaks. Um, in the road, so that Christ doesn't have to walk on the dirt. Uh, the last place in the Old Testament that you see this done, if you recall this story, it's in 2 Kings um, chapter 9, verse 13. God has anointed Jehu to be king over Israel. He sent his prophet to anoint Jehu to be king. Um, and he's going to wipe out, the if you remember, the wicked line of Ahab. Ahab and Jezebel were those those that terrible king and queen of Israel who, who slaughtered the prophets, and God is anointing someone to judge them. And when he anoints them, the people take off their, their coats and cloaks and they lay them down before him. 
And so he gathers this procession to him, and he, he goes to the royal city to judge Ahab's line, his son and his wife. And, and as he's going, I, I just love this story. They, they see this group coming, so they send out messengers, and they come to say, uh, Jehu, he was a well-known man, he was a general of, of the king, say, Jehu, is it peace? And he says, what have I to do with peace? Get behind me. And so all these people uh, that the king sends out to, to stop Jehu essentially join his army. He sends them out and they join his procession and he enters the royal city in procession so he can come and judge the wicked rulers in the city. Do you think that this picture might be frightening the leaders of Israel, the Sadducees and Pharisees who had been misusing and abusing God's people for generations? They'd been abusing the word of God. They sat in the seat of Moses, Christ said, but they didn't lift a finger to keep the law themselves. And Christ is coming, and this procession comes out to join him on the way in. That's the picture that's being painted here. The king is coming, and he's going to demand a reckoning from the wicked leaders. Again, he, he enters the city. He's accompanied by the symbols of kingship, of atonement, and of judgment. What neither his followers, his fickle admirers, or his enemies realize, though, is how closely tied together uh, those three concepts are in Christ's plan. He, doesn't, he does come, rather, as a king, but he will be raised up as an atoning sacrifice. He's not a conventional king, and he himself is going to bear the judgment of God for anyone who will receive it. So we see the royal gesture of the crowd. They're laying down palm branches, their coats, and their cloaks. What else do we see here? Um, if we had any doubts about the people's intentions before this, all these things they're doing, uh, they make it clear what their intentions are, right? They go before him, and they follow him, and they're shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! So they're, they're giving him messianic praise. Um, Hosanna, they say, means something like, please save. They're inviting Christ to come and rescue them from their oppressors. They're saying, you're coming as a king, and we're accepting you as a king. Please save us. Rescue us uh, from the wicked rulers that we have. Please save. They're calling him the son of David. So finally, they've caught on, right? Uh, finally, the rest of Israel has caught on to what the blind man already saw. He is the son of David. Not only does he have the power to come as king, but he has the right to come as king. He is our rightful Lord. And he was. According to the flesh, he was the rightful king, let alone uh, according to the fact that he is God incarnate. He's the son of David. They recognize his lineage. And how much more true is that for us today? We recognize his double claim on us, not because of his, his lineage from David primarily, but because he is our creator, and as Christians, he is also our redeemer. He has created us, he has a right to us because he's made us, and he has redeemed us from sin, and so he has a right to our obedience. How much more should we recognize his kingship over us? What else do they say? They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, this is a quote from Psalm 118, uh, verse 26, which is a messianic psalm. 
and this is even the rabbinic scholars of the day recognized this was a psalm about the coming of the Messiah. They invoke blessings, joy, comfort, happiness, everything that a king should have for Christ. Blessed, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, happy in the truest sense of the word. Uh, all should be right for this man. Like just clear the way for him. Bow to him. He, he should be in charge. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, let him, again, be happy in the truest sense of the word. And this too, the Lord answered, didn't it? Even the cross was faced by Christ, the joy set before him. Even that was marked by joy for him. I think that's an incredible picture. Um, and, and why should he be, be blessed in this way? Well, because he comes in the name of the Lord. He's not coming on his own initiative and authority. He's not just, he's not just another upstart trying to chase out the Romans. No, he comes in the name of the Lord from him and with the full weight of his might and authority behind him. That's what the people are recognizing. In the verse following this in, in Psalm 118 that's alluded to here, I, I just love this. It says, bind the sacrifice with cords to the horn of the altar. That's the very next verse in Psalm 118 that comes up. So Christ is coming in. They're saying, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And Christ is saying, uh, bind the sacrifice with cords, the horns of the altar. He is going to be bound to a cross with nails of steel rather than cords. And he is going to be raised up as a sacrifice for his people. That is how the king comes. So we've seen now the, the king's retinue, his entourage, the people that are with him. Now we see uh, the king's rule. And I just want to give you a quick note on this. Um, the way we read it in this text and in, in Luke as well um, is, is that Christ, he, he goes over the Mount of Olives, he descends, he crosses the, the valley, he enters the temple, um, and, and he cleanses the temple. Mark's account is a little bit different. In Mark's account, Christ, he has the same procession and he enters the temple and he looks around. He sees what's happening there and because it was late, he turns around and he goes back to Bethany and he comes back the next morning and cleanses the temple. So you say, that's kind of a big discrepancy. Why do Matthew and Luke, um, why do they tell the story this way? Well, well I think it's, it's because they are, they are painting a picture they are painting a theological picture. And so they view Christ's entry and his cleansing the temple as one prophetic event. This is the coming of the king. It doesn't matter if there was a, a night in between. Mark isn't as interested in telling that story. He's kind of a just the facts ma'am sort of a reporter. Uh, but, but Matthew and Luke both want to paint this picture of Christ's grand entry and cleansing of the temple as one event. So I don't want you to, to come across that in Mark and, and be disturbed when you see that. Uh, he does have this night in between, but it is one seamless prophetic event that's happening. So the next thing we're going to look at is the king's rule. The king's rule. In verses 12 uh, through 17, Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. 
So he comes in, and as the glory of the Lord departed the temple in Ezekiel's day, remember, he left because of impurity in the temple. Well, now the glory of the Lord is returning to the temple, and he's going to cleanse it of its impurity. He comes in, and I, I just love the, the picture that's painted here. He doesn't come in. He's not gentle. He doesn't come in and, and argue with him about it. He doesn't come in and say, listen, you really shouldn't be set up here. This, this isn't appropriate. Maybe you could go just outside the gates, set up there. No, he comes in and he starts turning over tables. He drives them out. Why, why is his reaction so violent? Well, imagine for me, you know, we see things out in the world that we don't like all the time, right? Um, you know, you, you go to the mall, you might see someone uh, selling something that you object to, doing things you object to. And what can you do about it? That's the world, right? But if you walk into your own home and you see people doing objectionable, vile things, what are you going to do? You're going to say, get out of my house. You're going to throw them out of your house bodily if you need to because it's your house. You get to call the shots. Your house, your rules, right? Christ comes in to his father's house and he sees these people and the things they're doing sicken him. Um, he, he's, he's filled with zeal for his father's house. We see these, uh, these groups that he's dealing with. We see the money changers. We see the buyers and the sellers, right? Uh, the money changers, they're the, um, the, the people who had, so there's a temple tax that was required. You'd go into the temple and you had to pay, according to the law, a half shekel, a half a Jewish shekel is the temple tax. The problem is there wasn't a lot of Jewish currency in use. A lot of the currency in use was Roman. So you had to exchange your money uh, to, get, to get the right thing that you could pay for your temple tax. And so what these men would do, they would charge an exorbitant rate. Uh, and, and they're the only game in town. So you come in here and you, they, you would have to pay a huge sum to get much less in return to get your half shekel. But what are you going to do? You have to pay the temple tax and you're here in Jerusalem. So you might as well do it now. Even if it's going to cost you an arm and a leg, you do what you have to do to pay the temple tax. Uh, the next group that you see are the, uh, the buyers and the sellers, right? Uh, the Jews knew that there were rigorous restrictions on the animals to be sacrificed. And yet, it was a long trip, right? If you're, if you're somewhere in the farthest part of Israel, you've got to go make your sacrifice. It's like, oh, I've got to take... Uh, this young lamb that's, you know, perfect and spotless and try to keep him that way, get him all the way across the length of this rigorous journey to the temple. Maybe I'll just buy my sacrifice when I get there. That'll be easier. It'll be simpler. Um, so, so we'll just do that. We'll just take it easy. And so they get there. They go into the courtyard of the temple and there's these people selling sacrifices. And by the time you get there, it's Passover week. It's busy. Uh, other people have already been doing this for a while. And so maybe the sheep that you get, the ram you get, the pigeon you get, maybe it's not so flawless. Maybe it's not so spotless and unblemished. And maybe it's overpriced, but I'm here, I'm in Jerusalem, I have to have a sacrifice. So I'll make my purchase, I'll bite the bullet, do what I have to. God won't get a spotless sacrifice, but at least I'm kind of fulfilling my responsibilities. I'm dotting my I's, I'm crossing my T's, 
And Jesus comes into this situation, and this problem had been a problem since the prophets. Right? You, you recall that line from the prophets? Why are you bringing me your blind and your lame sacrifices? I don't want them. God's saying, keep your junk. I didn't require you to give me that. I want you to give me the best of what you have. But Israel adamantly, consistently refuses to do so. And Jesus comes in and he is fed up with his father's house being abused, with the worship of Yahweh being diminished by these regulations of of men who are just trying to turn a buck on the law of God. And so he turns over the tables. He chases out the buyers and sellers with their livestock, chases them out of the temple. It's his temple, and he gets to do what he wants with it. Uh, Speaking of the first temple cleansing, uh, that John talks about at Christ's first Passover during his ministry, he says that zeal for God's house consumed him. That word could also be translated as jealousy. Jealousy over God's house consumed him. Um, Christ is jealous over the temple. We have difficulty understanding this positively uh, because we're very off, very rarely are we properly jealous, right? We are jealous of the wrong things and over the wrong things. Um, but he's the only one with a legitimate claim on any man's worship. It is good and right that he be jealous over worship. It's good. Um, It's actually best for all of creation when he's worshipped. And it is a terrible travesty and a, a vile corruption of the world, of the things that he created, for them to be used in any lesser form of worship than worship to him in the way that he commanded He's in the temple cleansing business, and he will brook no rivals for worship in his house. So think about this, Christian, you who are the temple of the Lord. What rivals for his worship have you allowed into his temple? When he cleansed the temple, he didn't just say some words of rebuke and go home. He occupied the temple. He possessed it. He took charge of it almost with an almost primitive ferocity. He came in, he didn't come in gently. He took charge of the place. Is this a reality in your life? Are there things in your life that that the Lord has come and said, no, this has to go, and he's thrown it out by the seat of its pants out of your life? Is that a reality in you? If not, be very concerned, because that's what he does with temples. He cleanses them. He washes them. Um, in, In Mark's account, he says that, that he was not allowing anyone to carry anything through the temple grounds. He wasn't just not allowing the the bad livestock in. You couldn't use the temple as a passageway to get through. You say, well, I'm on the east side of the city. I want to get in through here. I'll just bring my load. I'll I'll pass through the temple. He says, no, you're going to have to go around. This temple is specifically for my use. What things are you allowing to be carried through your life? What things that you might say, well, maybe it's not a bad thing. Does it, does it actively serve to point you to worship him? Does it make you useful for his service? Otherwise, trim the fat. Get rid of it. If it is not helpful, get rid of it. You are designed for one purpose, and that is to worship and serve the Lord. We need to learn to be ruthless with ourselves and to allow him to cleanse his temple. If you want to see the church, you might. we often lament uh, the, 
the state of the church in, in America and in the West. You want to see his household of faith cleansed? You need to be cleansed. Ecclesiological correctness, the church being right, starts with personal holiness. Until you're holy, depend on it. The church won't be. Further, we see something of Christ's prophetic purpose in cleansing the temple. His actions here, they're so seemingly uncharacteristic of his behavior, right? He's, he is gentle, he's lowly, he's humble, he's kind, and all of a sudden he like turns the tables, literally. He starts flipping tables and chasing people out. And we see that, and that catches our attention, right? And it's supposed to. But I think we miss the things that he says sometimes. We, he's not just throwing out a verse disconnected. In a sense, he's preaching a sermon. He's, he's bringing some facts before the eyes of his listeners. So the first thing he says is, is my house is to be a house of prayer. And that's from Isaiah 56. And that verse falls right smack in the middle of a passage that should be beautiful to you and I, the Gentile believer. It falls right smack in the middle of this passage um, where the prophet speaks of a day when men of every tribe, tongue, and nation will gather to the Lord and he will bring them to his holy mountain where no foreigner was ever supposed to be. Um, he says that his house will be a house of prayer for all the nations. A house of prayer for all the nations, all the world, will be included in his house. And at this point, he proceeds to warn the irresponsible and derelict leaders of the time who are trying to stop that from happening. He warns them that it'll come in judgment. right? So he says, my house is to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And that is a reference to, to Jeremiah chapter 7. To Jeremiah chapter 7. And he says, and this is right in the middle of an even sharper passage of rebuke. Um, the Lord sends Jeremiah to preach right outside the temple gate, yards away from where Christ is, uh, is doing this. And he warns Israel. He warns them that their trust in the temple system is misplaced. He, he warns them that the Lord will not be unwilling to come in judgment against them. Don't trust in the temple. You're putting your faith in your, in your heedlessly following the temple procedures with no reference to the God who you're supposed to be worshiping. And he reminds them of the way the tabernacle was destroyed at Shiloh when the Philistines came and the priestly line, Eli's family, was almost all cut off and slaughtered. And he says, I'm willing to do that again. I'll do that and more. And he does do that and more. Seventy years after Christ's cleansing of the temple, he sends the Romans to level the temple so that no stone is standing upon another. He is not unwilling to exercise judgment. These words in both of these prophecies are a startlingly accurate picture of what Christ is doing for the rest of this week, right? He's going to be warning Israel of judgment to come, and he's preparing to take the kingdom away from those who have abused it and give it. Uh, he's going to give it to a people comprised of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. I think it's no accident. The first miracle uh, that's performed when the Holy Spirit uh, descends is the 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 speaking in tongues, right? Men can hear the gospel in every language, not just Hebrew. So these Jewish men get up and they speak and men hear the gospel in their own tongues because this is not restricted to Israel any longer. He is opening the world up 
He's opening the kingdom up to all the nations of the world. And you're not going to come by this way anymore. Within a few decades, again, the temple is going to be utterly destroyed along with the city. But on the other hand, his church is going to advance and is going to grow. And we see, in addition to Christ's prophetic purpose, we see a successful occupation of the temple. A successful occupation. You remember a few years ago, I think I was in high school at the time when, when this is going on, but the Occupy movement, Occupy Wall Street, and you know, Occupy the Brooklyn Bridge, Occupy your local park, that everything was being occupied. People would go and they'd just like hang out there in protest. And uh, the longer they would occupy places, the worse they would get. It would descend into squalor and crime, violence. Um, they would leave and places were just really destroyed. Um, well, Christ doesn't occupy that way. right? They showed up and in order to keep their space, they'd just camp out there. They wouldn't go home. They'd stay pitched in their tents or without a tent in the middle of Central Park or something, just staying there, living in their own filth. Um, but what Christ does, he's better at occupying a place, right? He recognizes that it's his, so he goes in and he takes it. Um, but then, I love this little line here at the end. It just shows, it's a very gutsy move, I think. Verse 17, leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So Jesus comes in, he takes the temple, and then he goes home again at night. And when he comes back in the morning, it's still his. It's his temple. And he's able to, to maintain control of the temple uh, even when he goes home for the night. I think that is just an incredible fact. When he takes it over, he leaves it better, not worse. He cleanses it. He doesn't make it worse than it was before. That's what he does with temples. For the next day, possibly possibly two days, I think Wednesday is probably a, a silent day in the week in the Gospels, um, but he returns to the temple in the morning, um, and the scriptures will say that various people, from the peasants to the duly appointed officials, the Sadducees who and the Pharisees, the scribes and things, they come to him. He doesn't go to them. He's in the temple teaching, and they come to him in his temple uh, to question him. Some come to him to be healed, some come to hear from him, some come to argue with him, but they're all coming to him, not vice versa. It's his temple, and they have to come before him in his throne room, as it were. They come to visit the king. So very briefly here, let's see the first challenge of this kind that, that he hears. The first people that come to him, um, it's going to take place here on day one. The chief priests and scribes, right, they're indignant at the praise being given to him. And so they, they ask him to rebuke the children that are, that are saying, Hosanna, the son of David. They say, won't you rebuke these guys? You hear what they're saying, Jesus? Aren't you going to silence them? And his reply, I, his, his reply just ups the ante. It's like, you don't like that? Well, listen to this. Um, he, he, he replies with a quote from Psalm 8-2, which is a line from Messianic Psalm, but it's a tribute, that line is attributing worship to God himself. Out of the mouth of, of, of uh, nursing babes, I'm looking for the quote here, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. He says, haven't you ever heard this? This is about me. There, it is praise for me that has been prepared 
from these, these children from before the foundations of the earth. He accepts their worship, not just their lauding him as king. That's what they think they're doing. But he accepts their, their worship to him as God. In one fell swoop, he raises the ante. I love this. Um, far from rebuking them, he shuts the mouth of his opponents and he accepts their worship as his due. What are you going to say about that, Pharisees and Sadducees? Not only am I your king, I'm your God. How do you like that? Not very much. I, I love the, the attitude that Christ shows in his response here. We've covered quite a bit this morning. Won't belabor this, this tale much longer. Um, th- there's just so much packed in here, and there's even more. I, I had to, to cut things out of here that I wanted to talk about, but um, I know we've seen a lot of Old Testament pictures this morning, and we've wandered in into some slightly speculative waters, um, but I hope that we've successfully shown Christ to be, he kind of temporarily throws back his cloak and reveals who he is. I, I love the picture he paints here. He reveals his kingship and his deity in a way that would arouse his enemies to take exactly the actions that will propel him on to his exaltation. He sets the stage. He gets his enemies mad enough to, to take him to the cross so that they can raise him up as king. He's, he's organizing his own kingly procession, but make no mistake, he's also planning his own funeral, as it were. And he knows this, and he does on purpose. He comes, finally, as an unconventional king, making his conquest through his own death, mastering his enemies by making them his friends. This is the Christ that we serve. This is the king who has a full and free claim in all of our love and loyalty. I I hope that we see him as that this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.